Awesome. Thank you, choir. It was, uh, <clears throat> that was especially good hearing, hearing you guys sing. I just, it struck me down front here, just being able to hear the congregation singing as well. What a good, good time of worship. Philippians chapter 4, if you would, go ahead and turn with me there. Fourth uh, chapter in the book of Philippians is where we are. Moving through this book, we've been in it for uh, about three months, a little more than three months now. And uh, coming towards the close, just a handful of messages left still in chapter 4. And uh, today we're going to be somewhat th- kind of in that middle section, and we're going to see Paul shift gears a little bit in the book of Philippians as he writes this letter. Again, it was a real letter written to real people uh, in the same way that you used to write letters. Now they're emails or texts, but in the way that you used to write letters, right, you kind of have an intro and then you'd hit everything and then you'd start to wrap things up. We're getting a sense here now that Paul is starting to wrap things up, but the words that he shares at the end of chapter four, the middle and end, are just as important, equally as inspired as the rest of the book of Philippians as well. So getting to a really, really crucial point where Paul is beginning to shift gears. So I want to shift gears for a second as well, and I want to take a step out of church life for a moment and into corporate life because all of you are familiar with the way corporate America operates. Some of you work in the midst of that. Others of you, obviously, all of us are affected by that. And whether you work in a corporate position or whether you are a business owner, really regardless of whatever type of job that you hold, more than likely the place where you work has some form of a mission statement. You may be completely unaware of that mission statement, or you may see it posted on every wall and every piece of paper that you ever get where they have it on there or somewhere in between. But all of us are familiar with companies that have have mission statements. And simply what that is, is a small, concise couple of sentences or so summary of what that business or what that corporation is all about. And they don't put all the detail. They don't put all the logistics of how they're going to work it out. It's just this statement on paper that says, this is what we're about. This is what we aim for. This is our mission. And so I pulled a few of those in for this particular message this morning. We're going to go somewhere with this. But uh, one of those is Publix, right? You're familiar with Publix. That's a, a place right here close to us. Half of you, I'm guessing, are Publix folks. Others of you are Kroger folks. And uh, you're probably like really dedicated to whichever one. You can't go to the other one uh, if you're already committed to one. But for Publix, right, this is their mission statement. This is what they're all about. It says, to, quote, to be the premier quality food retailer in the world. Right? For Publix, if you were to ask them, if they're good employees, what is your mission statement? They're going to say it's to be the premier, right? not just average, but premier quality food retailer in the world, right? Not just here on the island, but in the whole entire world. That is their mission. Here's another one, right? One that hits a little close to home, Krispy Kreme. So what is their mission statement? It's not to make people unhealthy and gain weight. It is not that, though they have hit it really, really well. Uh, but this is their their mission statement specifically, to make the most awesome donuts on the planet every single day, right? I'm still bitter about this because they're making awesome donuts for the whole planet, but they, they, they abandoned us out here on the island, right, when they closed that place there on Skidaway. So still got some little issues with that to some degree, but they're very specific, right? It, they're not saying we're going to make breakfast sandwiches. We're not making biscuits. We're making donuts, and they're not going to be average. They're going to be awesome. <laughs> it's so cool they put that word in their mission statement. And, and it's going to be for everybody. This is what we're going to do. This is their mission. All right, so one final one, Amazon. You're familiar with Amazon? It's to be the earth's most customer-centric company. Amazon's mission statement, one sentence, boil it all down, is to be uh, uh, the, the, the earth's most customer-centric 
company. When you think about how they operate, they really are. I mean, two clicks and you've got something delivered to your house in a day or two. You can get it even faster than that just about. I'm starting to wonder if we're not one day going to just order something, you know, dog food, and then suddenly the dog's answering the door in about 10 minutes because the food's there, right? Everything just gets faster and faster. And if you've ever returned anything on Amazon, it's incredibly easy to do that, right? Customer-centric this is their mission. So why are we talking about mission? Because you're thinking, Brooks, I didn't come here to hear a message about corporate America. Why are we talking about mission? For two reasons. One, that in the same way that the business where you work more than likely has a mission statement, uh, in the same way you have a mission statement also, right, about your life. Now, you probably never sat down at the kitchen table and crafted it out in a sentence or two, but people who see how you live and see what you're all about know what your mission statement is as to how you live your life. Maybe for some of you, your mission statement is to largely do whatever you can to one day retire comfortably, right? And much of your, your, uh, your life revolves around getting that next big job, getting the next big promotion, right? Saving up that money, making all the decisions you make so that one day, hopefully earlier than you would have ever expected, you're going to be able to retire and to do that comfortably. Maybe that's your mission statement. Maybe your mission statement is your, in your life is to have a happy family right? Whether that's kids, grandkids, you and your spouse, or regardless of what it may be, it's to have a happy family in all of your life. Everybody who knows, knows that your life revolves around having a happy family. Maybe it's getting rich. Maybe it's being and staying healthy. It can be a bazillion different things, but your life has a mission statement. And here's the thing. If your mission statement that you've never probably sat down and crafted out in words, if your mission statement does not have God at the very center, then it is a mission statement that's going to go off the rails at some point, maybe very, very soon. Right? And, and so when we talk about mission statements, we know that every single one of us have one, and, and, and our mission statement has to put God at the center, and it must align with his purposes for us as well. We don't operate independently from God. We don't have, as it relates to the mission of our lives, we don't have God over here in this box that we only visit on Sundays or maybe Wednesday nights as well, and then we're over here and this box sort of making all the decisions and doing how we want, and then once a week we go back over to the God box, and then we leave and go back to real life, right? That's not the way it works. The mission of our lives has to have God at the very center, and it has to align with what his purposes are for us already. Here's the good thing. God has shown us what his purposes are already. He's given us a whole book about it, right? And so when we get to, 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 uh, to a relationship with God, have to understand our lives have a mission as well. Every single one of us in this room has a mission. Another way this ties in is that when we get to this place in Philippians, Paul has already laid out in this letter what the mission statement is for followers of Jesus and for local churches. He's already dealt with it all through Philippians. Here's what's going to happen. And we're going to see it starting in this message today, in this passage rather, today. Paul is going to take the mission statement off of the page and he's going to tell them, this is how you live out God's mission in your life in practical ways. If you live in or operate, work in corporate America, what you've understood is, is that a mission statement is absolutely worthless if it only exists on paper. There's no magic, <laughs> right? If Amazon has the best staff meetings in the world and every single employee of all the thousands of employees they have, if they all have the mission statement memorized and can quote it at any point at any time, but they don't translate that from paper to everyday life, they have failed. And the mission will not be accomplished. It applies to Amazon, Krispy Kreme, Publix, your business where you work, 
your personal life, and to church as well. We have a mission statement here. It's very simple. To lead people to love Jesus, to serve others, and to make disciples. And everything we try to do is with that in mind, right? But listen, if we can all only quote it when we run into each other in Publix or when we run into each other at Krispy Kreme or wherever we are, if we can all quote it but we don't live it, it's worthless. It means nothing. Paul in Philippians here has reminded these believers in Philippi of what the mission statement is as a follower of Jesus. Starting in chapter 4, in the passage we're getting to today, he's going to say, here are some ways, not all the ways, There are a lot more ways we're going to look at just here, but he's going to say, for you, Philippians, and for us, these are some ways you take God's mission off the page of your life and you begin to live it out in practical ways. Ways that make a difference, not only for you, but for others that know you as well. So let's do a quick little summary, specifically, of what the mission is that Paul has laid out here in the book of Philippians. The mission for every church, the mission for every believer. I believe it can be summarized in chapter 1. If you want to flip that back there with me, Philippians chapter 1. Let's remind ourselves of the mission statement of the follower of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 27, verse 28 Again, in my opinion, you may disagree, you may pull out another passage, and that's perfectly fine, but I think this is the summary passage of the entire book of Philippians. Verse 27, he says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit." with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. Paul is saying here to the Christians in Philippi and to us, he's saying, you are on a mission. Part of that mission, obviously, it begins with you having a relationship with God. That's, that's understood. He's writing to Christians with a relationship with God through Jesus. But he is also reminding them that part of that mission is that you live up to the standard of the gospel, that you conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of the message of the gospel, that you don't say one thing on paper and then live in a different way, that people won't become confused when they hear you talk about Jesus and then put the microscope to your life and see something vastly different. Paul says, no, you need to live in a way that that projects the gospel, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, and then he even goes so far as as to say standing firm with one spirit right we do this together striving together for the faith of the gospel and by the way he says in verse 28 and don't be alarmed because you're gonna have people against you you live in a fallen world it's going to be against you and everything you stand for and everything you believe so don't be alarmed right because you serve a savior that got nailed on a cross so you're going to have detractors you're going to have opponents you're going to have enemies So live in a way that puts Jesus on display. And then he builds on that, right? He lays out, that's the mission statement, verse 27, verse 28. And then he begins to build on it. Look at chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 13. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. So you have a relationship with God. Here's your mission, live up to the gospel, right? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Do it together as fellow followers, stand firm, continue to to, to push the gospel, right? But at the same time, he says, work it out daily in your life. Not work for your salvation, work out your salvation. 
right? Let God mold you. Let God shape you. He goes on to say at the end of that, for it is God who ultimately is the one who works and, and who wills for his good purpose. We, it's about us aligning our lives with God's work and God's will for our lives. Paul says this is all part of the mission. Chapter 1, verse 6, he makes this amazing promise. He says, by the way, don't lose heart because he who began a good work in you, the day you, you gave your life to Jesus, he's going to carry, on, carry it on till the, to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. God is going to keep molding. He's going to keep working. So as long as you jump up on that anvil and say, Lord, I'm surrendered, here I am, do your work, God's going to do work. And he's going to mold you and he's going to shape you and he's going to conform you into the image of Jesus. Paul, again, is reminding these Philippians, this is God's mission for you. Look in chapter 3, verse 8, starting there. Paul says, more than that, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He goes on down, verse 9, he says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, right? Not, not because I've worked so hard at this, but I want the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul summarizes all that. Paul says, I want to be found in Jesus and I want to be molded into his image. I want to be found in him, and I want to be made like him. That's the mission. Paul, what's your mission? Is it to preach the gospel everywhere? That's part of it. But it starts with me being found in Jesus and being molded into his image, then answering his call for my life. This is part of the mission that Paul reminds them of. You look over in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that, again, here's the mission statement, Philippian Christians, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have no reason to glory or I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul says, in this fallen world where God has left you, Christian, he says, I want you to prove yourselves to be a follower. I want you to stand for what is right. We're going to get to that again next week in verse 8 and verse 9. And I want you to shine as lights in this fallen dark world. So the Philippians read this letter and remember who they are, okay? The Christians... They came to know Jesus. More were added to their number since Paul was last there. Paul's in prison when he writes this letter, probably in Rome. <clears throat> and he writes this letter to this group of Christians living in a city, Philippi, that is a Roman colony in the midst of the Roman Empire that is set up literally, physically, like a little miniature Rome. And they live in the midst of a, in a context where if there was a religion of their day in Philippi, it was to worship Caesar. That, 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 was, that was what they did. They worshiped Caesar. They worshiped their ruler. And, uh, and they did that in very literal ways. And Paul says to this group of Christians, you're on a different mission. It's not to expand the Roman Empire. It's not to bow the knee to the Roman leader, the Roman king, the Roman Caesar. But you serve a different king in a different kingdom. You're about a different mission. And he lays all that out at the beginning, uh, uh, the first, really the first four chapters uh, up, up through the very beginning of chapter 4. Now we get to chapter 4, verse 4. 
and he says, I've given you the mission statement. The mission statement is worthless if it only stays on paper. You've got to live out this mission that God has called you to, and he's going to give them a few ways to do that very specifically. Now, again, we're going to start here in verse 4. We're only going down through verse 7 today. We're going to look at four different directives that, that Paul lays out that God gives us as to how to take the mission statement off of paper and to live it out in our lives, but there's a lot more we can add to it, but we're preaching through Philippians, not everything, okay? Paul's going to give them four directives specifically, and every single one of these apply to us as well. So the summary of the mission of the believer is that we are to know God through Jesus, that we're to grow and mature in that relationship, we're to be molded into his image, and then we're to stand for him and to shine for him in a fallen world. Paul says, here are some ways you can do it. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. I'm going to read the whole passage, then we'll move through a little more slowly. Chapter 4, verse 4. So Paul writes and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul gives four directives, right? He's showing them, here's how you live out the mission that God has put you on. Number one, he says we rejoice. Number two, he says we project gentleness. Number three, he says we reject worry. And number four, he says, we take our requests, whatever they are, to God. Four ways, he says, to take the mission that God has put you on, and you begin to live it out in practical ways. He says, we rejoice, we project gentleness, we reject worry, and we take our requests to God. Let, let, let's move through these, because this is enough to keep us busy for quite a while, right? So verse four, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say, rejoice. So... <clears throat> When you are trying to communicate something, let's say your parent, let's say your grandparent, or you're working with kids, your teacher or a preschool worker or whatever. And let's just say you're trying to communicate a message. Maybe this is the way your parents were with you. That, that when you're trying to communicate to a child something that is of great importance, right? Whether it's uh, bring your grades up or clean your room or, you know, you need to eat better, eat all your veggies, whatever it might be. When you're trying to really communicate that topic, that hot topic that you really want them to get, how many times do you say it? Just once or more? I had a guy in the first service that sat right back there. I saw 10 fingers up it, right? Well, I'm talking, he had 10 fingers, 10 fingers there, right? So we repeat those things that are especially important. Paul here says rejoice. How many times does he say in that passage? Two times, right? He says it twice. He says rejoice at the very beginning, the first word, and then the last word of the verse, he says rejoice yet again. Rejoice specifically in the Lord. He says how often, always, and then again, in case you missed it, Philippians first time, he says again, I will tell you, rejoice. He's talking about the topic of joy. Many people will say that the whole theme of the book of Philippians is the theme of joy. Hard to argue with that. I think it's the gospel and living in a way that puts it out there and actually putting it out there. But if you say joy is the theme of Philippians, hey, I'm not going to argue with you. you got a really good argument. Part of it is because of this verse. Paul is talking about the topic of joy. And he, he lays this, the, the, this picture out there that joy, and you've heard this, I'm sure, maybe in the past, joy is different from happiness because happiness is circumstantially driven. 
Happiness is driven by our circumstances. You have a great day at work. Maybe you get uh, 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 some type of an increase or you get a bonus or, you know, the supervisor has trusted you with a project and you feel really good about that. Or let's say maybe, um, you know, your favorite team won or, you know, it's a great day and you're able to take the boat out, whatever it may be. When the circumstances are good, happiness increases. Well, here's the problem. When you got problems with the boat motor or the boss is against you, not for you, or things aren't falling out in the, in the right way for you, then that happiness begins to go in the tank. Why? Because it's driven by circumstances. Paul's not talking about circumstance, or he's not talking about happiness here. He's talking about something vastly different, joy. And he says, not rejoice in your circumstances, not rejoice, Philippians, because you're not in prison, even though I am. He doesn't say that. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And where happiness is driven by circumstances, joy is driven foundationally by our relationship with God, right? And that does not ever change. Now, I know a lot of what I'm preaching today is a lot more difficult. Well, it's easier said than done, right? I know, I know there are challenges. I know it's hard. It's hard for me at times to always choose joy, even though James chapter 1 tells us to do that. I, I get that. I'm not trying to, to put this picture up here that I've got all this nailed down and buttoned up tight, right? We live in a fallen world. We're human. We're all being molded in the image of Jesus. But here's the thing. If we can get to a place to where we really just honestly choose joy no matter the circumstance, things are going to be so much better, and we're going to put Christ on display much more clearly. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And I'll even say it again. He says, rejoice. Now let's go back to the gospel for a second. The message of the gospel is very clear. Paul doesn't lay it out in a lot of detail here because he's writing to Christians. But, but the simple message of the gospel that he would lay out clearly in Romans, right, is that all of us have sinned and fall, fallen away from God, right? We, we are separated from God. We're even enemies of God, Ephesians would say. All of us have sinned. But what the gospel tells us is that even though we're alienated from God because of our sin, God still loves us in that state so much that he even sent his own son that while we were yet sinners, <laughs> Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ chose out of his great love for us to leave heaven and to come to earth that as God, he died on the cross and took our place that while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his own love towards us. That Christ died for us and he rose again so that if we only admit our sin, and make the decision that I made when I was a little kid, and many of you have made, and some of you are thinking about making this decision, that if we make the decision to say, you know what, I'm not trusting in myself anymore. I'm a sinner. I need grace. I need Jesus. He's the only one that can fix this issue in my life. I'm going to turn from my sin the best I can, and I'm going to invite Jesus to forgive me and take over my whole life, that when we make that decision, listen, God changes everything for us in so many ways, and there are words that apply to us that didn't apply before. One of those words is the word redemption. It means we've been redeemed. Another one of those words is reconciliation. It means we've had that, 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 um, that enmity between us and God reconciled and fixed that we were once far and we've been brought close now through Jesus. We've been reconciled to him. Another one of those uh, uh, Bible words that applies to us as, as new believers is that we have a relationship with God. He's not the enemy, he's father, right? 
He's our Father. We have a relationship with Him. And another one of those big Bible words is the word justified, justification, that we are declared not guilty. Even though we have a list of sins that can be held against us, God declares us not guilty because Christ took our guilt and took our shame and took our sin and He took our payment and He gave us His righteousness in exchange. And that is really, really a good deal. Well, here's the thing. Here's how this all begins to fit now. If you've been redeemed, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been redeemed, and that word redeemed has slave connotations to it, and in the first century, it would have meant someone on a, on the, in the slave market who had their freedom purchased. They were bought back off of the slave market, so to speak. First century context. The picture in which the Bible uses that word redeemed is in the context that we were in many ways on sin's slave market. And Jesus died in our place to buy us back to a relationship with God. Listen, if you've had that happen in your life, if you've been redeemed, then the foundation is set for you to have joy in your life that doesn't depend on circumstances. Because you're free. You're, not, you're a slave no longer to sin. You've experienced the redemption that only comes through Jesus. And so Paul says, as he writes from prison to a group of Christians living in a city dominated by emperor worship that did not have room for God in their culture and in their context, Paul says to that group who had many, many, many opponents, he says, rejoice always in the Lord. He says that's one way that we take the mission statement out of just writing, and we begin to live it out. It's an action step to living out what God has done for us through Jesus. Paul lists a second way that we do that, a second way that we live out the gospel, that we live in a way that validates the gospel. And it's in verse 5. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Now, this is a cool passage of Scripture because it goes back a little bit to Philippians chapter 2. It goes a couple of chapters back further. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He's talking specifically, uh, again, more directives, but he's talking also about what Christ has done for us. He says in Philippians 2 verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And there's verse 5, he gives Jesus as the example of that. The ultimate example of humility. The ultimate example of gentleness. When he gave his life, right, to ultimately die on the cross for us. Paul says, let your gentle spirit be evident to all. Let your gentleness, some translations say, be evident to to all. There's one place in the New Testament where Jesus describes himself. This is so interesting. Maybe you've ever wondered, what did Jesus look like when he walked this earth? Was he 5'10"? Was he 6'3"? Did he have long hair, short hair, dark hair, blonde hair? What did he look like? And of course, we would expect him to look as one from Jewish descent because when he came as a, as a person, fully God, but also fully man, we would expect because of his human lineage, right, that he would bear certain Jewish distinctions in the way he looked. But we don't know a lot of the details. We don't know his hair color. We don't know his body type. We don't know how much he weighed. We don't know how tall he was. We don't know any of those things. He doesn't tell us. But there is one place in the New Testament where Jesus describes himself. 
in all the books, all 27 books of the New Testament, one place where he describes himself. And he doesn't say how much he weighs. He doesn't say how tall he is. He describes his heart. And it's in Matthew chapter 11, in the context of when he says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy burdened, right? You ever fall into that category? Come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. Here it is. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus describes himself as being gentle. And here's the thing. Now, when God inspires Paul to write this scripture, the directive that he gives to the Philippian believers as one action step to living out the gospel, living out the mission, is ultimately to project gentleness. To project gentleness. Right? So, so let me ask a question. How well <laughs> do you project gentleness? Starting with your marriage, starting with your kids, starting with your grandkids, starting with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with your enemies, would people look at you and say, you know what, you just have a way of really projecting gentleness. If that's the case, then you have a way of really projecting Christ and of validating the gospel. But maybe for some, it doesn't come so easily. It is a fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Sometimes it comes with as we mature and as we grow in our relationships with Jesus. But Paul says specifically here, one of the ways that we can demonstrate the gospel is through the gentleness of our lives. It does not mean weakness. Jesus was the strongest person to walk this earth. And to do the things that he did and to respond in the ways that he responded in the face of such incredible opposition was not weakness. It took an incredible amount of strength for him to respond in those ways. And Paul says to show gentleness in the same way that Jesus shows gentleness. Remember, when you gave your life to Christ, follow me here, some big words were added to you. One of those big words was justification. It, was, it means you were justified. You were declared not guilty. If you've been justified by Jesus, if I've been justified by Christ, and we have when we come to him in relationship, then we have what we need for us to project gentleness to others as well. Why? Because <laughs> if, if you've been justified, declared not guilty, listen, it, you don't have to it doesn't matter how, uh, how you're perceived by others. You, you've been declared not guilty by the king of the universe, right? There's no reason not to project gentleness. You got nothing to prove, nothing to prove to anyone. And so Paul says, let your gentle spirit be evident to all. Look down in verse 6. Here's a third way that Paul says for us to demonstrate the gospel in real life. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He says, number three here, reject worry. That word anxious in the Greek language can mean distracted, it can mean pulled apart, it can mean having a divided mind, right? We've all been there. Some are a little more prone to worry and anxiety than others, right? Maybe for you, it's so easy for you to worry in the midst of this culture in which we live, maybe financially, 
times are not easy. Eggs cost about 50 bucks a dozen now, it seems. And, you know, all these things are ju- just, you know, going, going the wrong direction economically, it seems. And uh, maybe for you, that creates a lot of anxiety, a lot of, a lot of strife. Maybe you're crunching the numbers and you're thinking, I don't know how we're going to make it through this. I don't know how this is all going to work. And anxiety begins to build. Maybe for some of you, it's the political culture, right? You've just been torqued out of shape all weekend long because you've been thinking just, you know, this balloon, (laughs) you know, this balloon over the, you know, it's like your whole weekend was ruined. Yeah, I knew it wouldn't last when it hit the South, right? And, uh... I mean, too many people got leftover fireworks from New Year's, right? That, it, is, it was not going not to last. But maybe for you, like the whole political climate just gets you so bent out of shape and just, you know, your blood pressure rises and all of that just it starts, to, starts to grind on you. You know, to where you find yourself divided, pulled apart, distracted, anxious, worried. Paul says here, he says, it's a directive, right? It's a way we put the gospel in, in action. He says, be anxious for nothing. Verse 5, you probably realized I skipped part of verse 5 here. I think it fits really well with verse 6. I mean, I'm not trying to edit the Bible, but I think it's a great reminder. In verse 6, he says, the Lord is near. We, we, we have the capacity to not be anxious because, verse 5, the Lord is near. I mean, we're never at a place in our lives where we are apart from the presence of God. We literally, genuinely do not have anything to worry about. Jesus said, don't worry. Your father, he takes care of the birds of the sky. He takes care of the flowers in the field. He's going to take care of you, right? And so Paul says, be anxious for nothing. In your relationship with God, you've been reconciled. You've been brought from being far away to near. You've been reconciled. You've, your life, though you lived as an enemy against God, through Jesus, you now have peace with God. Reconciliation. That lays the foundation for us to not be anxious. Easier said than done. I get it. But sometimes maybe when we feel that anxiety begin to rise, we take a step back. And we'll remind ourselves, the Lord is near. I have a relationship with him that's rooted in peace. I've been reconciled. In fact, that's exactly what Paul even says in verse 6. He says that we take our request to him. We're getting there. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses, goes beyond all comprehension, beyond our understanding, will guard, it will garrison your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says the way we take the mission statement off of paper and live it out into our lives is that we rejoice, we choose joy, we project gentleness, we reject worry, and then lastly, he says, we just take our requests to God. We bring everything to him. And the reason we can do that is because we also have a relationship. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's kind of what pulls it all together, right? We don't bring our needs and our requests to him when we've given it a good try and it went off the rails. We bring our requests to him first and foremost. And here's the cool thing. Every now and then I'll hear people say, you know what, I just feel guilty about asking God for this. I've asked him for this, you know, whatever it is, so many times. I just feel bad about even bringing it to him again. Listen, he invites you to do that. He swings the door open wide. He says, bring me your requests. Now, some of them he's going to say, it's not the right time. Let's just wait. 
And others, he'll say, no, I'm not doing that for you <laughs> because I've got something different, I've got something better, right? But regardless, he says, bring the requests. And the reason he says that is because of the beautiful thing called relationship. You have a relationship with him and he's your father. So all through Philippians, Paul reminds them of their mission statement. <laughs> you're to walk with him, you're to know him, you're to be found in him. You are to be molded and shaped as you jump up on that anvil and let God work and mold and shape you in your life. You are to live in a way that doesn't contradict the gospel, that complements the gospel, and, and to stand for truth and to shine as a light in this fallen world and to do it together with your other brothers and sisters in the faith. And then he says, and here's four ways that you can do it. He's going to add a little bit more. We'll see next week. A lot of other ways he could have told us, but I'm telling you, if you're like me, this is enough to keep me busy for a while. Right? Rejoicing always. Projecting gentleness in my relationships. Rejecting worry. And bringing everything to God. So which of those four needs your attention like ASAP? Which one of those would you say, you know what, man, I, I need to grow in this area most of all. Rejoicing, projecting gentleness, rejecting worry, or just being a person of prayer first and not after everything's fallen apart. Which needs your most attention? Won't you let that be your focus this week as a follower of Jesus? And if you don't know Jesus, man, the first step is not to get this list down. The first step is to begin that relationship that God offers to you on the table today by saying, Jesus, I've blown it, I've sinned. You are God and you paid for it. Forgive and take over for I surrender. And he'll do it. Let's pray. Lord, a great passage of Scripture, a very practical passage of Scripture. It gets out off of kind of the mission in writing, and it begins to show us how we put the gospel on display in our lives. We don't want to live in a way that confuses the world we live in. We don't want to live in a way where the world points a finger at us and says, oh, you claim to be a Christian, but look at this. Lord, we, we want to be able to have real joy in our lives. We want to be able to demonstrate the gentleness that you, Jesus, demonstrated when you walked this earth. We, we don't want to be wracked by anxiety and worry and stress over things we can't even control. Lord, we want to have that, that steady peace that only you can provide. And we want to be people that, that don't come bringing our requests to you when our best attempts have failed. We want to bring them to you to start with. And God, we thank you that you're molding and shaping us into those kinds of people. Lord, help us to stay on the anvil, to let you do your, your master quality work in our lives, God, as we live surrendered to you. And Lord, as you mold and shape and change us, God, we pray that it'll give you glory and that you'll also give us the boldness in this world, God, to live in a way that puts you on display and to tell people how they can know you as well. And so God, thank you for this book of scripture. Thank you for the difference it makes when we live it. And may you be honored through it in Jesus' name. Amen.